You can be seated. Good morning. Uh, one announcement that didn't make it in the bulletin, you heard it prayed for. We do have a congregational meeting coming up on the 22nd. Uh, it's a Tuesday night, so it's a skill testing question. We used to do them on Wednesday, then we moved to Thursday. Now we do it on Tuesday. Who knows when it's going to be, but it's October 22nd. We need members to come out and be a part of that dis- discussion that night. Um, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. I tell you, one thing I am thankful for is that this is the last Samson sermon of the series. Uh, Some of you guys have been around for this series on Samson. Um, It's been an interesting series. Next week, Jake will take us into the beginning of the life of Samuel. Um, Samuel had his hang-ups too, but but he's far different from Samson. And our text today is Judges 16... 1 to 31. So it appears at the beginning of this that approximately 20 years has passed since the end of chapter 15, since last week's text, and Samson has been ruling or judging Israel all throughout this time. But as we read the text today, you're going to see in that 20 years, he's not changed very much. It's been 20 years and not much has changed. So let's just read chapter 16 of the book of Judges. I apologize for what is to follow. (laughs) Just kidding. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and he went in to spend the night with her. And the people of Gaza were told Samson's here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and he took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. And sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. That's a red flag in a relationship, by the way. (laughs) Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs, bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. And then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. And he said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. And then with the men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But, she, but he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. And Delilah then said to Samson, until now you've been making a fool of me and lied to, lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. And he replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pen, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping... Delilah took the seven braids of his head and wove them into the fabric and tightened it with a pen. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and pulled the pen and the loom with the fabric. And then she said to him, how can you say I love you? (laughs) This is just too funny. How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? 
This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. And with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. And when Delilah saw that he told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands and having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. And then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him They gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding, grinding grain in prison. But the hair on his head began to grow after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. While they stood him, when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the, crowd was crow- now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. And then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me get with one blow revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, Bracing himself against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than, when, than while he lived. Then, while his brothers and his father's whole fa- then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him and they brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshterol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. And so ends the life of Samson. I want to start today by touching on his story as we literally look at Samson's last, Samson's final chapter. And maybe you've had enough of Samson. I've heard that from several of you. Are we done with him yet, right? Over the last three weeks, if you haven't been here, we have systematically dismantled any sense of godly hero from his resume. We've realized that he is a guy who acts impulsively. He does what he wants. He doesn't surrender his will to God's, and yet God is still using him. He's he's a person that God uses against the Philistines who were oppressing his people, but he is far, 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 far from a role model for any of us. And this chapter is no different. It starts with the story of another woman and the city gates. Now, he, he heads far south into Philistine territory. Remember, this is 20 years since last chapter. And he heads to the town of Gaza, which is about 35 miles away. Here's a map. The the arrow is Dan, where he lives, in Zorah. And he goes down to Gaza, where the little circle is. It's 35 miles away. He's deep into Philistine territory. And and it says, once again, he saw a woman. This is, that's almost every time he sees something. And that's where his problems start. He sees this woman. 
And he stays the night with her, and the men of the town realize who's in town. Samson's here, and so they think, well, the, the city's all closed up. He can't get out. We're going to stay here at the gate. They're probably in the houses that were built into the gate, sleeping. But in the morning, we're going to get up, and we're going to kill him. But in the middle of the night, you heard the story, he gets out, he rips the gates up. Now, that's an impressive, not just the gates, but the posts that hold it in. I was like, what can I do to help you understand how impressive this is? There's a guy named Thor Bjornsson. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a small guy. He's six foot nine. He weighs 430 pounds. He's won the World's Strongest Man title twice. And I found this video of him carrying a rock that weighs 430. 40 pounds. So this rock weighs 10 pounds more than him. Have you got that video, Reed? You can turn the sound down. You can turn the sound down. You might hear words that we don't want in my sermon. <laughs> that rock weighs 10 pounds more than he does. It's pretty impressive, this guy. Yeah, let's just run around. Let's run in a circle. Like, why do you run in a circle when you're carrying a beer? I don't know, but it shows you're strong. Like, his shoulders are about three times the size of me alone, Right? I mean, that's an impressive feat of strength. 400, how many of you could do 440 pounds? <laughs> Even pick it up, much less carry it all the way around in a circle and drop it down and everybody cheers for him. I think it's done, right? Are we done yet? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep talking. But Samson, what I'm saying is, Samson gets up in the middle of the night and he takes these wooden gates and the metal hardware and he rips the posts up and it says he carries them to the top of the hill facing Hebron. Now, Hebron was about 35, 38 miles away. I, they don't know exactly what that means. Was it just up on a hill outside of town looking toward Hebron, or did he go the whole way? Either way, if you rip up the gates of the city with the posts holding them, it's a pretty impressive feat. He was a force to be reckoned with. And yet, what's interesting about the story, as, as quickly as we got there, we move on. And sometime later, it says, we see what Samson does for love. Now, this is the interesting and I think the saddest part of the story. Samson falls in love for the first time. It says he fell in love with a woman. And it, and it actually names her. Did you notice how many women in the Samson story have been named? Zero. But finally, he loves this woman, Delilah. And it mentions her. That's really interesting. And, and once they realize, oh, Samson loves Delilah, the rulers, it says the rulers of, of the Philistines, there were five major cities, so the assumption is each city had one main ruler, the mayor, the governor of the, that city, and the five of them formed a council that led the Philistines. The, the theory is these five leaders came to her and said, you've got to figure out how to stop him. And they offered her 1,100 shekels of silver each. Now, how much money is that? Is that a lot of money? If you go to the next chapter... There's a guy that gets hired to be a priest, and his yearly salary is 10 shekels of silver. And they're offering her 1,100 shekels of silver. That'd be 110 years' salary, times maybe five. She will be one of the richest people in the whole area. She will never have to work again. And you saw her career choice earlier in the text there, right? And so then it gets... She accepts that. We don't know how she felt about him, but she obviously loved the money more than him. And then you see this process, which is just humiliating. Verse 6, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. And three times we see that cycle happen. And you just, don't you just want to grab Samson and say, what are you doing? She's trying to trap you. Don't you see it? And either he was overconfident 
or she was just very persuasive and naggy was the term actually used there that finally he got so tired he told her exactly what, what, what it was. Don't cut my hair, that will take away my strength. And that's what she does, which leads to his capture, his humiliation, and ultimately his revenge. His, he's caught, his eyes are gouged out. This is when you think, you know, bedtime stories for children, and then you actually read the Old Testament, and you think, really? This is what we told? That is funny. They gouge out his eyes, they put him in the prison, grinding game, grain, which was a menial task for this great warrior of Israel. And then they threw a big religious feast to honor their god, Dagon, because Dagon, their god, they say, has delivered our enemy into our hands. And they're throwing this big feast, and meanwhile, there's that little cryptic reference that his hair had started to grow again, right? We all read that. And in the feast, they call him out to entertain them. And I'll just be blunt, what that basically means is they called him out to humiliate him. Most likely, they stripped him naked in front of the whole crowd and mocked him. That was the entertainment for the evening. And then he said to his servant, you know, put me over between the pillars so I can rest. And, and you see his prayer, right? He prays to God. This is the second time we've seen him pray, right? And it starts out beautifully. You realize there's a brokenness to him when it starts out. Oh, Lord, what's he say? What verse is that? Mm-hmm, 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. I mean, don't forget me, God. Don't forget me. And then his prayer kind of goes south. <laughs> Please strengthen me once more and lead me with one blow to get revenge on the Philistines because they've hurt your people for so many years. It's not what he says, is it? Let me get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Right? And he pushes, he gets the strength, the whole thing comes down, and it says kill more in his death than he had in his life. And then there's this picture of his brothers coming to retrieve the body and bury it. It's just a sad ending, isn't it? It's a sad, sad ending to a man who was called by God to liberate his people. And there's there's a lot to see there, but I want to use the life of Samson to illustrate what I believe are some principles of the spiritual life. And this is, I mean, once again, he's a bad example of these. But, but we want to take a step back from his life and look at a bigger picture about how do we grow in the spiritual life? What is it that shapes us and, and, and helps us and drives us in the way we make our decisions and the way we follow God? There's some things that are common, I think, across the human experience that we see done poorly in the life of Samson that we can learn from. And I've touched on these all throughout this series, but I want to kind of bring them into one package here. The first one is this. Everyone feels the longing. Everyone. We all have this desire within us. Not just you, everybody in this entire town has a longing for something more. Sometimes they can't express it. Sometimes we, we you know, we, we, we feel it when we're sad or we feel it when, we're, when, we're, when something goes well. We have this longing for something different. You know what my friend Matt used to call that the stab. It's this feeling that there is more to life than what you're currently experiencing and it's a hunger for that. And see, Samson had that longing. He, he was looking for something to fill it all along. He, he would see these women and he would do these great feats of strength and he was a leader and he would, would try to, to trick the guys at his wedding with a riddle so that he could gain stuff. He had this longing for something more. 
We all have that longing for something bigger than just us. There's a great verse in Ecclesiastes 3. It says, God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has also set eternity in the human heart and yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Do you see the poetry of that statement? He's put eternity inside your heart, but you can't really grasp what he's doing from the very beginning to the end. There's, there's something in you that cannot be complete just with you. There's a longing for something bigger. And I, I mentioned David's words from Psalm 63 last week. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. See, there's, there's longing and desire, and that becomes something that we need to realize that drives us in our lives. We do what we do because we feel that longing. That desire is why Samson did what Samson did. And over time, these actions that they drive us to become habits. We look for ways to fill that longing, and that becomes a habit. And our habits shape our loves. Now, we often think of it as the other way around. What we love shapes our habits. But I'm telling you that our desire for something shapes our actions, and our actions become habits, and our habits shape our loves. We can have disordered loves. We can love the wrong thing. But if we begin to do these things to fulfill our desire, like Samson pursued women, he pursued power, he pursued victory, those things became the things that he grew to love because they gave him a little taste of what he desired. See, our longings, and our, which are shaped by our desi- which shape our desires, they shape our habits. And, and we feel this need to pursue this desire. We pursue it, and it begins to shape our loves. Now, there's a verse in Romans 8, Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the Spirit. What he's saying there is we have this desire that pushes us forward in life. And we have a choice about what we choose to fill that with. If we choose to fulfill it with the desires of the flesh, the things that we think that aren't lasting, that that will shape our outlook toward life. We'll begin to love those things. But if we choose to let that desire be filled with the things of the Spirit, that will shape our outlook. And by outlook, I think he means our love. Samson's looking for something, and the choices that he made as he looked became the things that he loved. He loves Delilah. He loves a woman that obviously is out to get him. He's got a disordered love. And our habits shape what we love in the spiritual life. He lived according to the desires of the flesh, according to his brokenness. And in the words of Romans, that shaped the way he looked at life. That shaped what he loved, what he gave himself to. Let me flesh this out a little bit in terms of today, because we tend to think of this We think the desires of the flesh are all the bad things, the desires of the spirit are all the good things, so we need to do all the good things. But it's more subtle than that. And so I've got two friends I've invited, Phil and Wilbur. There they are. You don't know how hard it is to try to pick a name that is not somebody that goes to church here. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you how this cycle plays out in Phil and Wilbur. And they're both going to be doing good things, but they're doing it to fulfill something that's not the deepest thing. And it disorders their love. Let me tell you how it goes. 
They both feel that sense of longing. They want their lives to count. They, they second-guess their decisions. They feel a hunger for something greater, just like you and I do. And in their difficult times, they wonder why things are the way they are. And they begin to do things, partially in response to that longing that they can't quite express, but that they both feel. And, and I'm, like I say, I'm not going to make it black and white. One's not the good guy, and one's not the bad guy. They're going to look more like you and I than, than, than the drug dealer and the pastor. Okay, Phil, Phil says, you know what? I have this longing. I want to make a difference in the world and I'm going to work for this great nonprofit charity, whatever it may be. And he thinks the goal is great. So he begins to throw himself into his work and he gets this great feeling from what this charity is doing. Surely this must be what he's longing for. And over time, guess what? His habit of going and being invested in this charity shapes his love and he begins to love the work that he does for this charity. But over time, the task just grows, and there's never enough help, and the charity work is hard, and he's trying to make the world a better place, and there seem to be so many people that seem to want to take it in another direction. Have you noticed that? And feels he loves what he does. He's working himself to death at this charity, and he loves it, but it's not enough. But he loves it so much that he doubles down, and he works harder, and he spends more and more time away from his family, and one day he realizes that what he's doing, very, very good thing that he loves, has cost him a relationship with his kids and even with his wife. And guess what? The world is still a really bad place. The longing still aches inside of him. But see, he's chosen to go this way and he's loved something, even though it was a good thing, that wasn't ultimate. His, his desire shaped his habits, which formed his love. And we've got to be careful what we choose to love. Now, Wilbur, he knows guys just like Phil. And he's decided that he will never sacrifice his family for a career. His longing is to make a difference in the lives of his family. So he sacrifices career advancement. He sacrifices financial success to be with them. It becomes his love. His family becomes what he lives for. But believe it or not, something happens. It could be one of several things. Either his kids don't respond the way he thinks they would. Anybody have kids that don't respond the way you think they would as they grow up? Or his wife feels like he's just not driven enough. She's not taking care of me. He's not taking care of me. He's not doing what he needs to do. Or maybe, maybe it goes great with his family, but guess what? His kids move away and into their own lives. And Wilbur comes face to face with the fact that what he loves, what he has habitually given his life to, still doesn't meet the longing that he feels inside. See, it's not wrong to love a good career. It's not wrong to love your kids and your family, but if those become your ultimate loves, then you're not going to make it. You're going to one day realize that that is not what I'm supposed to give my life to. See, because our loves shape our lives. What we give ourselves to, we grow to love. Both Phil and Wilbur give their lives to good things, but it's a life of disordered love. They love something that looks good, but is not the ultimate It's not wrong, like I say, to do either one of those things, but they're not what we are to love primarily. And love for God, I think, will lead us into those things. It will lead us into making a difference in the work that we do. It will lead us into caring for our family, but it's deeper than making that our primary love. See, that next verse in Romans 8, Romans 8, 6, says, For the outlook of the flesh is death. But the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace. When we're building our life for something less than what's ultimate, even if it's a good thing, ultimately it leaves us empty. When we we build our life 
toward the love for God, it, it leaves us life and peace. See, the way you seek to fulfill your longings is crucial because it cultivates what you actually love. And what you love actually shapes the rest of your life. That's why I keep coming back to the fact that when it comes to what we love, we have to realize that God's love is the catalyst for this. Until people are captivated by the love of God, you can serve Him all you want, but until it flows out of a response, when you realize that God loves you as you are, broken and needy like Samson, and God loves you, then all of a sudden that begins to, to, to drive your love past what you're doing, past your family, past a good task, to Him. And, it, and, it, and then it flows out of you. It's a totally different way of, of building your life. Because love for God will shape your life. You'll do the same things, but you'll do them from a whole different place. We have to allow our habits to cultivate, first of all, a love for God over time. And then the the other things fall right into place. That's why we say here at our church, we want you to commit to mission and worship and learning and relationships because we think these habits cultivate a love for God in you. They will make space for you to experience the love of God and help you respond in love to God which will lead you into career paths that fulfill the kingdom of God, which will lead you to treat your family the way Jesus would want you to treat your family. You see that that whole process, Samson, I mean, he's a far cry from what I'm talking about. But what he did was he, he had a feeling and he chose to do things to meet that feeling. They were horrible things. It led him to destruction. Now, we can even choose good things, but if they're not the ultimate things, it still leads us to this place of emptiness. Some of you, we, we, you know, we come to that point where we're like, what, God, I've done everything for you, and I still, I still feel that longing. And, and it's because we've, we've been looking to the success of doing things for God to meet that need instead of just realizing God has already met that need. He, he, he loves us deeply before we were ever born. Remember in Philippians, we talked about that last series we did. Paul prayed that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He didn't pray that they would just know more. He prayed that their love would abound. That that they would sense the love of God for them and be able to love the world with that. And you start thinking about Paul writing in Romans 8 again about the love of God. He says in Romans 8, 1, "There there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't care how you've messed it up this week. The scripture says God does not look at you and condemn you if you're a follower of Jesus. So if you're condemning yourself for where you failed this week, you are doing something that God is not. Okay? And then it goes on at the end and say, I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons, the present, future, powers, height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to realize first, and this is, I mean, ultimately Samson was, was coming from a bad place, right? He lived in a context that had totally forgotten God. They'd totally forgotten who God was, what he was doing, most of them. Israel had no king, and each man did as they saw fit in that period of the judges. So he's coming from a, from a, a place with very few resources. We are not. We're told every week here at this church that God loves us despite our brokenness. And to first receive that, and, and, and we always come back to, we, why do we love? We love because he first loved us. That's what begins to shape our lives in a different way. So when I come back to the series title, 
I, I want to close with that because I think we all have a longing to be the people God uses, right? We, we say the people God uses and we look at Samson and maybe five weeks ago you thought Samson was this hero of the faith. Well, he kind of is a hero of the faith. Hebrews 11 and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Don't you want to say, God? Uh, wait, wait a second there, God. Have you read that Samson story? You sure you want to use him as a hero of the faith? But he goes on and later on he says, you know, they did all these things. And one, one phrase I think specifically of Samson, whose weakness was turned to strength. Samson in his brokenness, because, not because he was faithful as he listed in Hebrews 11. He's, he's listed in Hebrews 11 because of the love and grace of God. That's what you've got to realize. If we're going to live and develop habits in a way that cultivates what, what we love, we need to let that love we develop be grounded in the love that God has for us. And when it comes to the love of God, the first thing we see is it's about grace and not perfection. It's about grace and not perfection. If you look at his prayer, right? Oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. Yes, beautiful prayer. You hear the longing in that. He's had that longing his whole life, but his choices have led him to this place where he's blind, he's, he's humiliated, and he's going to, like, it's, it's a suicide. He's going to kill himself and the whole, all those people with him. That's how his life ends. And, and the prayer starts beautifully. Oh, Lord, remember me. Do not forget me. I have this longing for you. And then he says, oh, God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Still about me. See, what happens is he has that longing, but there's been so much pain in his life that all he wants to think about is inflicting pain on others. And that's what happens when you don't align your loves. When you don't let God address that pain, you're going to spew it on everybody you come around. If your pain is not transformed, you will transmit it to everybody you come in contact with. And the only thing that will transform your pain is the love of God. And realizing it's about grace and not perfection. Ephesians 2. It's by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by your works, so that no one can boast. I I think our prayers have that mix. We have that longing. God, remember me. And we also have that pain. And deal with this situation, please, right now. We have that mix just like he does. And it's okay. That's okay that we pray that way. But we have to first let the love of God come to us. Second, it's about surrender, not power and strength. Samson was powerful. But it was in this moment of weakness that God used him to bring judgment on the Philistines. And you think, what, what can I do? What can I do in life? What, how, can I God, how can I serve God? Look at my life. I've messed it up. I'm, I don't have these great skills. I've made so many mistakes. Well, you know what you can do? You can surrender. Because partially that's what he did at the end. God, remember me. It's me. There is an act of surrender in that. Paul, I love Paul's story because Paul has this one thing that that weighed him down, a thorn in the flesh, he said. And three times he said, I prayed to the Lord, take this away from me. This thing, this brokenness, this weakness, whatever it was, he couldn't even say it. He couldn't even write it down because it, it weighed him down so much. And God's response to him in 2 Corinthians was, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. He says, so therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, one of the greatest lies the world will tell you is that your effectiveness and your strength is what's going to win the cause for God. So hide your weaknesses. 
And you know where I experience the love of God the most? When I acknowledge my weakness. When I admit the failure that I am in what I'm hoping for, then the love of God comes there. And there's a surrender there that is more powerful than anything I could ever do on my own. See, if you, if you had to boil down those last four weeks, Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16 today, to one lesson, I want you to hear this really clear. Our choices impact us, not God. Our choices impact us. God is still going to work whether Samson is faithful or not, whether Samson chooses healthy, ordered loves, love of God first. God's still going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He doesn't need us in his plan. Acts 17 says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything. (laughs) Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Get this through your head. The mistakes you've made have in no way limited God. And I've said this. I said this last week. So why worry about our mistakes? Because our mistakes form our habits which shape our loves, which bring life to us or death. Which make, so, so, so what I'm saying is the choices that we make are vital because they shape what we love. And we need to make conscious choices because God says, I've, I've told you to follow this way. I've led you in this way. I've, I've, I've shown my love to you. I've given you the scripture. I've put you in a community of people. I've called you to live in a relationship of worship and love with me. Those choices will begin to shape your habits and develop your loves in a way that will bring life to you instead of death. But if we refuse to surrender, we actually hurt ourselves. That's why Samson's story calls us to surrender. The whole book of Judges is about the days of Israel when, when Israel had no king and every person did what, what was right in their own eyes. Well, guess what? That is not today. The scripture makes it very clear that we have a reigning king in Jesus Christ, one who is alive and ruling over the cosmos, even if we can't see it sometimes. Even if we worry about elections and what's God going to do if this person or that person, he's the king. This is a day when we do have a king. And surrendering to his leadership, surrendering to the love that he offers to us, brings us life in the midst of a dying world. And that is the call from Samson's life. He's gone this way. God used him anyway. But he says, look, if you follow me, out of you will flow rivers of living water that will touch people all around you. In powerful ways. Let's pray. God, thank you for Samson. Thank you for a limit to his life. And a limit to the texts that deal with it. Because it's hard to wrestle with with, uh, what we see in his life. It's also hard to wrestle with characteristics that we have. Where we chase after things like he did where our desires and our longings push us to develop habits that shape our lives in ways that hurt us and other people. God, I just pray that today this entire group here would be overwhelmed with the love of God. A love that says there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. love that says you demonstrated your love for us in this while we were still sinners, you died for us. And a love that calls us to love the world as you have loved us. God, shape us in this way. Cultivate a healthy love for you in us. Help us to develop the habits and the practices that shape our loves in a way that lead us into life. 
and a growing and, and, and enriching life with you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's, it's fitting on Thanksgiving we would talk about the love of God. I've got, I've got homework for you, though, other than eating a Thanksgiving meal and having a nap. Can you do those two things? If you can do those two things, that's great. But here's the other one. Take my life and let it be. Very often what we want to give to God are the best parts of our life. Take my life. Look, I'm here. I'm worshiping you. I love you. I'm going to challenge you over the next week at some point to sit down and be quiet for a half an hour and just say, what are the things that I'm ashamed to offer to God? What are the areas that I've failed, the things that weigh me down, the things that I don't want anybody else to know? And, and then I want you to write them down. If you don't want to do that, you don't have, I realize you Canadians aren't like, Americans will sign anything, but Canadians are a little more hesitant, right? <laughs> write them down. And then beside each one, I want you to go back and write out Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for me in this, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Let the love of God meet you at that life you're afraid to offer to God. And that will begin to transform you in a way that will, like when you're loved that way, you know what? When people offend you and hurt you, all of a sudden it's a whole lot easier to love them back because you've been loved when you've hurt and offended someone else. So if you want to be thankful for anything today, be thankful for the love of God. But I would say this week, do a practice, do something to take those parts of your life you're scared to offer to God and let the love of God come to those parts. And may you go in his love and live that way forever in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.